And now as we come before God's word, I'll ask that you turn in your Bibles to Esther in chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament. If you can find Psalms, just turn to the left a bit and you'll get there. That's Esther in chapter 6. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our God, uh, we know that you have carried your word, the scriptures, faithfully throughout centuries. And you've upheld your word so that we will know you and know what is true about you. As we hear from your word now, would you guide us by your spirit, help us to see and to believe. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Esther chapter 6. I want to read here the first five verses. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman's there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. This is God's word. Now, this is in the middle of the text that we read last week, if you were here with us. As we read, this is part of a series of reversals that happen in the book of Esther as we've been reading through the whole book. Uh, we saw that Haman uh, will soon be destroyed, uh, while Mordecai the Jew is honored, and God is the one in the book of Esther that's working all of these reversals. Uh, so if this, uh, sound, this text sounded familiar to you, it's because we read it last week in the middle. Uh, but we're following the themes through the book of Esther. Um, instead of just focusing on a text like we normally would, we are reading through the entire book, but as we go, we're following the themes. But uh, this week's theme and this part of the chapter is so central to the book of Esther that we just couldn't move on past it yet without touching specifically on it. So it'll be the only time that we reread a section of Esther's here in the section of chapter six, because this section is really the high point of the book of Esther. And it's not the high point that you would expect, but the author intends it to be our focus. Let me show you why. Um, 
I have to step aside for a minute, just a quick story. Uh, a few years ago, Laura and I got to take a vacation in Mexico, which was just lovely and hot. And, and while we were there, we got to visit the ancient city of Chichen Itza, uh, which we kept, I, at least I kept joking, sounds like chicken pizza. Uh, but Chichen Itza, at any rate, the ancient city that's on the Yucatan Peninsula. And it was the, one of the most fantastic things I've ever seen with my own eyes. You've probably seen pictures of at least part of it. The, the middle of it is, is El Castillo, which is this giant structure uh, that, that looks like a pyramid with steps. So you know that kind of thing? A ziggurat, they call them in Assyrian cultures. Uh, but they've got parallel steps that come up to a point at the very top. And this is the structure of the Book of Esther. Uh, it's common in Hebrew literature to do this, to have these sort of structures. It's called a chiasm. There's a little bonus. You don't need to know that term, but there it is. Uh, and in Esther, this structure, this chiasm, this ziggurat is brilliantly done. It takes a bit of work to see it, uh, but you don't need to be a scholar or a professional uh, minister to see it. We just have to be observant and patient readers. There are plenty of indicators that show us this structure, but one of the main ones is the use of feasts in the book of Esther. So you'll remember several weeks ago, these are all over Esther, building the structure for us, showing us, guiding our eyes where we're supposed to see. In the very first chapter, you'll remember King Ahasuerus, or his Greek name was Xerxes, if it translates it that way in your Bible, uh, had two feasts for the land of Persia. The very first one was for uh, his officials and nobles and governors from all of Persia. And then he throws a second feast for all the people in the city of Susa where they are and they all gather together. Two feasts at the beginning. And then in chapter 9, we see two feasts at the end. That when the Jews celebrate uh, this, this new holiday, Purim, there are two feasts. The one, uh, they celebrate, the Jews celebrate it in all of Persia and in the second day of it. Uh, specifically, there's a day of feasting in the city of Susa. So there's the first tier. Now, the second tier comes up. You can see in chapter 2, Esther, when she's crowned queen, there's a feast around that, as you might expect, around a crowning of a queen. And at the end, in chapter 8, there's a feast when Mordecai is promoted in the royal uh, official. When we come to chat, so there's another tier. One more. Uh, Esther, you'll remember, has two banquets that she asked the king and Haman to come to. One's in chapter 5 as her first banquet, and the second one is in, in chapter 7. So there's another tier. And at the top of, the, of these tiers is chapter 6, the very peak of the story of Esther. So when we get to the top, what do we see there? Look at chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. It's a strange thing to be at the top of Esther, isn't it? The Hebrew there literally reads that sleep fled from the king, which I kind of like. But at the top, we don't see uh, that the Jews are saved from destruction. 
We don't see a lavish display of kingly power. We don't see the downfall of wickedness, although we will see all of those things in the book of Esther. But the pinnacle, uh, the high point of the book of Esther, is a night of insomnia. So that brings us to ask the question, why would the author do this? What is he trying to help us see? The author here, in putting at the top of the pyramid a night of sleeplessness, is really highlighting the fact that the fate of the entire Jewish people and the entire empire of Persia rests on one sleepless night. That would be utterly terrifying if events just happen. Unless there is an invisible God who is orchestrating all of these details, unless there is a God who has a hand in these details, unless there is a God who is governing the details. Well, that's when we get to our theme. This theme for this uh, week, we call it God's providence. It's connected to God's sovereignty. Uh, it's a, a particular expression of his sovereignty. Um, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I love this thing, it's just tidy descriptions of things we find in the scriptures, uh, says this, what is God's providence? And the answer is God's providence is his completely holy wise and powerful preserving and governing every creature and every action. I like the description in the Heidelberg slightly better, although they're saying essentially the same thing. We read it uh, during our affirmation of faith. I'll read part of it again. He, that's God, upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. In essence, uh, what we're talking about with God's providence is the fact that he upholds and governs good things, so rain, food, health, and hard things, the barren years, the sickness and the poverty, the loss of a job, the onset of dementia, the struggles with school, the fact that a woman is taken into the king's harem just for such a time as this. All of this is according to God's providence and is governed and upheld by him. Now, we don't need to know the term providence. You don't need to know that word necessarily to see it working. I mean, you can see it playing out as you, if you read through the whole of the book of Esther, and especially in this section. It just so happens that the king can't sleep. 
And I guess, you know, during this time, there's no TV and Facebook, you know, not, these days he might get up and swipe through his news feed or something. But uh, so, so he gets up in the middle of the night and, and so he goes, I can't sleep, get a book. And so it just so happens that he asks for the book of Chronicles. That's different than the Bible's book of Chronicles, but it's a similar kind of thing. Uh, that it's just a record of things that had happened in his kingship. And so then it just so happens that of all the events that, uh, of the kingdom in this giant chronicle book that he could turn to, he turns to this page in which he's reminded that Mordecai the Jew had rescued him from assassination, which we saw in, earlier in chapter two. And then it just so happens that when Mordecai uh, had, had saved him, you know, earlier, that it was recorded in the books, but there was no honor that was given to him, and now the king sees it. And it just so happens that as the king decides to honor Mordecai, in walks Haman, the bad guy. And we saw his downfall last week. We'll see the rest of it next week. In all of these happenings, the author is not wiping his brow, going, whew, boy, that was lucky. Really dodged a bullet there. No, the author is helping us to see that God is at work even in the details, even in the sleepless nights, just like a composer makes a symphony out of every single note. We can see this not only in Esther, but in the whole of the Bible. My favorite example of this is in 1 Samuel 9. You could turn there if you want, but it's just a few verses here. The context of what's going on is Israel had asked for a king, so the, the Lord will give them a king, their first king, Saul, and he appoints uh, this man a king. So this is the appearance of Saul, the first king over Israel. This is how it plays out in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Here's the first three verses, starting in verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man, and there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost, and so Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. That, that, that's, I'll stop there. That's the part of the story that makes me, makes me chuckle. We see all these things about Saul that he's from a wealthy family. He's handsome. He's young. He's tall. Man, I'm a little jealous of Saul. He sounds like a king. You know, ah, that'd be the one I would choose. But uh, the author of 1 Samuel just says those things, mentions them, and then just ignores them. Those aren't the point. The next line then is, then there were lost donkeys. I just love that. And so, so they end up, I and mean, if you read the, read the rest of the story, they wander around for days all through these various cities, and they're looking for donkeys, asking around for these donkeys until they end up in the city of Ramathaim, which is uh, where they decide to ask for a particular man that they'd heard of, the, the prophet Samuel. 
So later in verse 15, we hear this. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you'll anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. So Samuel then does. He anoints this guy king. By the way, Saul never did find the donkeys. Uh, it says that. Somebody, it says, oh, somebody else found them and took them back home, so don't worry about them. But why mention them except to show that they had served God's providential purpose? God is providential or has providence over even the most seemingly insignificant things. We see Jesus talk about a similar thing. I'm just trying to make a case here for us, showing you that I'm not making this up. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, just a single verse we'll look at here, Matthew 5, verse 18. Jesus says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The iota, the dot, I think if you've got the NIV translation, it translates it, the smallest letter and the least stroke. If you've got the King James Version, which I kind of like, sounds old, it translates it, not a jot or a tittle. That's where you get the phrase, not a jot or a tittle. Um, the Greek there for iota comes from the Hebrew letter, a yod. It's the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first one, he says, not a, not a yod will pass away. And it looks like a little uh, a comma hanging up in the air. I guess that's a, called an apostrophe. It's this little tiny thing. It's the smallest letter of their alphabet. So he says, not one of those will pass away. And, and the word that my Bible uh, translates, oh, now I've lost it here translates a dot um, in the Hebrew is a, a little marker on the edge of a letter to change it to a different letter. So it's similar to an N becomes an H if it's got a, that high part, you know? So the difference between an H and an N, lowercase letters. But if you shrunk that little piece down to like a little tiny stump that distinguishes one letter from another, that's what he's talking about. So it's this little tiny pin stroke that makes a difference. So basically he said, not, not, not one of these, not, not one little apostrophe, not one little stroke of the pen. God upholds even those things by his providence. And it's not even just because, oh, okay, we're talking about the Bible, so of course he's going to uphold those things. Jesus talks even further. I'm almost done with these things here, but it talks about this further in Matthew chapter 10. You'll recognize this section, I think. It's a section where he's encouraging us not to fear. It's a basis for confidence. But in Matthew chapter 10, he says, starting in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. 
Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than the sparrows. You can hear his point there. He's taking the most insignificant things, sparrows and hair off of your head, and saying, if God has providence over even these, of course he has providence over you. That God has providence over your hair, which means, I suppose, if you're bald, it's God's providence. Sorry, it may happen to me too. That uh, even the hair on the, on the shower, if I could say that, that sticks to the wall, that that one is there according to the providence of God. Does that sound strange? My favorite example of this last one is in Proverbs. If you know me well, you know where I'm headed here. Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, the last verse of this chapter, Proverbs 16, 33, says this. The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, let's take the smallest thing, one die, in the small place right in my lap, in the most seemingly random event, falls according to the providence of God. This lot idea, it turns out, is extremely important in the book of Esther. So you'll remember that the Jews have been decreed for destruction by Haman, and the king had, had together uh, laid out the fact that at a certain date in the future that they will be destroyed. And so uh, when Haman tries to choose what day at which uh, they'll be destroyed, he throws dice, we think, something like a lot. And, and at the end, when they're not destroyed, spoiler alert, we'll get there in a couple of weeks, at the end when they're not destroyed, they name the celebration Purim. Jews actually still celebrate that nowadays. You can see it on the calendar. So the celebration, the yearly holiday is named Purim, and it comes from the Persian word pur, which means dice, the things that Haman had thrown so when the Jews are saved, they name their holiday Dice. And that's not because they think it was chance or fate or random or, 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 or dumb luck. They recognize that God was providential even over that. And they celebrate it. Some will say that God does not throw dice, but it's probably better to say that God puts even dice exactly where he wants them according to his providence. Now, for clarity here in, in, in all that I've talked about, none of this negates human actions or human responsibility. It's a mystery how God's sovereignty and providence and, and man's responsibility fit together, but according to the scriptures, they do. They are both true, and we don't know how that works, but it, but, but it does work that way. And we know that God does not sin. Man sins, and he's still responsible for the consequences of those sins. That's why we all need Jesus, by the way. 
That's why Jesus died on the cross according to the providence of the Father, to save sinners according to the love of the Father. But human actions are still real. There's still real actions. There's still real decisions. There's still real choices. There's still real prayer. So, so when Haman plans the Holocaust of the Jews, he is still responsible for that evil. And when Esther acts to appeal to the king to save her people, that matters. And when the king chose to read Chronicles, in the middle of the night. That was a real choice. These are all real and, and real choices according to the humans, but still, God is providential over all of it. If that's been in your mind a little bit, me too. It is hard for me to wrap my brain and my heart around these things, and I'm not the only one. Uh, a very famous... Um, 100-year-old preacher, not currently, he preached 100 years ago, um, Spurgeon, you may recognize his name, uh, commented on providence in one of his sermons from uh, 1908. He says this, here was providence, and yet there was my choice. How? I cannot tell. I cannot comprehend it. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses that the creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence, that the fall of leaves from a poplar tree is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He that believes in a God must believe this truth. A God that cannot do as he pleases, a God whose will is frustrated, is not a God and cannot be a God. Spurgeon's really right here when he talks about the fact that God's providence is total and complete. You hear all the uh, tiny little things he mentions, the dust that floats in the air that you can only see when the window's open. The spray of water, the chaff of seed, the bug on a plant, the leaves on the tree, and my favorite, the sn every snowflake of an avalanche. All of this is according to the providence of God. In essence, it comes down to God's complete Godship, his lordship, that he is really lord over all. Now, there's much more that can be said about this, and I won't keep you, you know, too long. I know lunch happens. That's, I suppose, the providence of God, too, that you start to get hungry. But as we start to wind some of this down, I, I, I could say lots about this, but I'll say three uh, characteristics. There's much more, but three characteristics about the providence of God that matter for us. So if you're a note taker, lick your pen. Here you go. Tried to tidy it up for you. God's providence is 
unchanging. God's providence is unchanging. It is set. It cannot be revoked. God writes in pen, not pencil. So we see this reflected in the story of Esther and the king Ahasuerus that when he makes a decree, he's a human king, of course, not God, but when he makes a decree, part of the problem is that he himself cannot undo it. Part of the problem for fixing this issue is that the decree is fixed. It's set. And in a sense, that's similar for God, that his decree is never thwarted, never. Not by Satan, not by demons, not by every power in the cosmic universe, not by King Ahasuerus, not by Haman, not by you. God's providence is unchanging. That is how, by the way, that we're certain of things in the Bible. That Christ's victory over death and the grave is certain because of God's providence. That revelation, as it plays out in destruction of evil, and the victory of God is certain because of God's providence. And Haman's downfall in Esther is certain because of God's providence. His providence is unchanging. We want that to increase our obedience to him. We learn day by day to yield to his providence, to submit to his providence, even with joy. But God's providence is not only unchanging. Here's the second one. God's providence is also wise. There's a sense in which, of course, the dice are not really random. The, the donkeys are not really lost. The insomnia is not really meaningless. That we know that the, the actions are not happening by the hand of the universe. They are happening by the hand of God, and they are all purposeful according to his providence and according to his wisdom. So an example of this is, is when it, we could see this in lots of places, but we see it when it comes to children. No child is an accident. Even in families where you see this, this child, 16, 15, 14, 13, 12, and six months. <laughs> Not an accidental child, even, by the way, if that child is conceived outside of wedlock. All of this happens according to the providence of God, and it gets complex and sticky real fast. You could think of all the complex situations, infertility, miscarriage, adoption, abandonment, childlessness, orphanhood, even abortion, Now, there may be sin on the part of the human in some of these, sin that needs repentance and forgiveness of God. And certainly with each of these, there's probably a, you know, a lot of pain and struggle that comes with them. But we need to know that while God never sins, even these things are according to his providence. And so they are full of purpose and according to his wisdom. 
want that knowledge to increase our trust in him because he sees more than we do. Lastly, third one, God's providence is not only unchanging and wise, God's providence is also mysterious. You hear sometimes uh, people will say, ah, God must have done X because Y. They'll give the reasons why God has done a particular thing. And I always go, you don't know that. I mean, you know that it happened, but you do not know why God has done a particular thing. Very rarely, even in the scriptures, do we even see why God has done a particular thing. God's full purposes are outside of our reach. They're a mystery to us. He's given us his law, his revealed will, which is his good ways and, and purposes there. He's also given us his spirit by which he guides us in wisdom according to that law. But he has not given us a window into his hidden will. Even after death, we don't receive all knowledge. So while we don't see why God always works, we do know that he is working according to his unchanging and wise providence, even in the middle of a sleepless night. We want that to increase our faith in him. So while our lives are very different from Esther, very different context, our God is the same. And his providence over us is still unchanging and wise and mysterious. We know that God upholds all things, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us to wrestle with these things in a way that's good, to wrestle with your unchanging and wise and mysterious providence in a way that increases our obedience and trust and faith. Guide us even down the difficult roads. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.